The young man that sat in my office that particular day was the kind of guy that I hope my own boys grow up to be like. He had this wonderful energetic earnestness about him. He was a warm, passionate guy with a wonderful personality. And it was going to be my privilege to to marry him and his fiancée in about 10 months' time. And then they were heading off, uh, moving out to, to New York City area. He told me that he really would love the chance to spend more time together uh, over this intervening spread of time. Uh, he told me that it would make it easier for him to feel good about having me up there in front of him on his wedding day. But more than that, he said, uh, I, just, there's just so many questions I have. And and I've never really had the opportunity to talk to a clergy guy, a clergyman before, about some of my doubts. I'm going to call this young man Thomas, though that was not his actual name. Uh, But I will tell you that on that particular day, we had a, a great conversation about some of the things that were on this young man's mind. He said, you know, I've not really been all that religious in the past. You know, the struggles that I have about this whole faith thing have made it difficult for me to feel at home in any kind of a church. He talked about the questions he had about the reliability of the Bible, for example, about why we should really trust that this was any different than any other kind of book or religious book. He, he raised questions about the divinity and the miracles of Jesus, about how well religion and science actually square. He described his doubts about the uniqueness of the Christian path to God and and his concerns about this radical, crazy teaching of Jesus about denying self as the path to fulfillment when he saw so many other paths to a different kind of success that attracted him in the world. Over the course of our time together, he described the struggles that he had about believing in a loving and good God in a world of so much pain. Thomas had a lot of doubts. When I suggested that he use this time between uh, that moment and the day he was getting married to really pour himself into searching out answers, he was a little resistant. He said he wouldn't really feel that comfortable coming regularly to the church, and that's what I had suggested he do. Come to church, get involved in some classes, read the scriptures, get to know other people that have been living this stuff out for a while. And he said, you know, I'd I'd feel like a hypocrite if I did that. I'd feel like a faker. In amongst all of these serious, committed religious people. And I hope you'll forgive me, but I told him he wouldn't be the only hypocrite in the room. <laughs> you know, I said to him, Tom, you're, you're going to have lots of good company. He said, there, I said, there are pretty much two kinds of people in the church that I serve. First, there are, are, are these people who, who, who basically have all kinds of struggles with life and with faith and are pretty real about that. And then they're the second kind, those who have all kinds of struggle about life and faith and they're just faking it. They're lying about it. They're lying about their doubts. 
And I think that's true, isn't it? There's nary a person that comes into a a church or a faith community that hasn't at some point whispered in the secrecy of their souls, is any of this true? I mean, is all of it true? I mean, how do I even call myself a believer when I have such doubts? Well, that's what I want to think about with you today. I want to talk with you this morning about two particularly significant truths about doubt and use that as a ground for walking into some significant truths, two particular truths about faith that I think it's worth our time uh, considering and taking with us from here. And let me treat first, if I may, the topic of doubt. And, and, and let me just go all out and let you know that what I'm about to say is going to sound like it runs in, in perfect contradiction to the biblical passage that we have just read a moment ago together. But I think as we sit with it, you'll see that it really doesn't at all. The first thing you need to know is that for somebody who calls himself a believer, a follower of Jesus, doubt is a natural part of a growing faith. Doubt is a natural part of a growing faith. Now, to hear some religious people talk, you would not think that. To hear some religious people talk, you would think that to have doubts, to raise questions about God and about what we're taught in the Scriptures, is the signs of a dysfunctional faith. You will hear some people speak as if questioning God's actions, wrestling with what, the what and the why of the way God works was an act of, of treason against God. But that is clearly not what the Bible teaches. If you study the Scriptures, you know that, that there are many, many times when God presents circumstances and, and calls to people that are met with tremendous struggle on the part of his disciples. I think of the story, a famous story of Abraham and Sarah. God tells them to start picking out baby clothes at a season of their life when they're picking out grave clothes. And they go, no way. This is impossible. They roar in disbelief. When God tells Moses that he wants him to go and confront Pharaoh, the number one, the head of the greatest superpower of his day, and tell him that He better let go the entire working class of his society. Let them go from Egypt where they're in bondage and and be free to go off in another direction. Moses looks at God as if he's insane. He says, it's not possible, God. And I'm certainly not the guy to do it. If you read the confessions of King David the psalmist, if if you pour over the lamentations of prophets like Jeremiah, then you know how often the meditations of these people are filled with honest sighs and sometimes angry, raging. How long, O Lord, are you even there, God? What is going on here? You're managing things so badly, God. If you read the Scriptures, you cannot help but be impressed by the authenticity with which God's servants express their doubts. And yet, when the Bible lists the names of the most 
faithful servants of God. Read the book of Hebrews sometime. It lists the likes of Sarah and Abraham and David and Jeremiah as heroes of the faith, which I think brings us to an inescapable conclusion. And that is that doubt is a natural occurrence in the life of a believer. Some degree of of doubt or uncertainty is the very appropriate and authentic response to the mystery of the presence and purposes of the God we really have. I mean, if you don't feel some confusion in the presence of the God we really have before the mystery of the way he works, then, then something's not natural. God himself says it's going to be this way. Speaking through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 and verse 8, we hear God himself reminding us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Don't be surprised when there's a disconnect here for you. My ways are not as your ways. Don't be surprised when you're confused by the way I'm operating. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm seeing everything from an elevation and perspective that, God bless you, you just can't have right now. God says to us. So at the funeral of the 47-year-old young mom of four kids yesterday, and this room is packed wall to wall with people wondering, How can there be a loving God who lets the good die young like this? How can there be a loving God, a good and active God, who lets evil prosper in the world in the way we see it in the headlines every week? When God looks upon this earth of people raging and struggling and expressing their doubts, do you think he really is surprised? Do you think this really unseats him, rocks him, hurts him. Author Frederick Buechner says that whether your faith is that there is a God or that there is not a God, if you don't have doubts, you're either kidding yourself or asleep. I think of C.S. Lewis, who, as many of you know, is one of the greatest Christian spokesmen of the last century brilliant Oxford and Cambridge scholar. He said that when he was an atheist, he would have these moments of profound doubt, crisis of faith in his atheism. What if I'm wrong? What if there's a God? What if I'm going to stand before this God like the Christians say someday and be accountable from the way I've lived my life? What, what if there was actually a way to life everlasting and I missed it? because I never examined it closely enough. He had these terrible moments of doubt in his atheism. And then Lewis said, I became a believer. And I'd still have these moments of doubt. What if God is, what if it's all a fantasy? Lewis said, I decided that one day I would have to put my feet down and live from someplace. And on the preponderance of evidence, I became convinced that it was from the ground, the rock, the solid rock of faith, 
that I wanted to put my life, build my life. So doubt, my friends. Doubt in the face of the unknown, the not yet revealed, the undiscovered, is perfectly natural. It's a natural part of faith, of a growing faith. But it's more than that. It's more than that. Doubt is also, secondly, a necessary part of a growing faith. Doubt, says Buechner, isn't the enemy of faith. It is an element of it. Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith, he says. I love that. They are what keeps faith awake and moving in a creative direction. Christian poet Madeline Lengel says much the same thing, but in this way. If you don't doubt, she says, you don't change. If you don't ask questions, you stay stuck wherever you were. If you have to have finite answers to infinite questions, you're not going to move. The value of doubt is to keep you open to God's revelation. Have you found that to be true for yourself? I, I know I have over the course of my life. I mean, I, I think about the role that doubt has played for me, the constructive role doubt has played for me along the, along the way. I, I don't think that, that if I had not had doubts about the existence or the goodness of God when I faced as a teenager this whole string of catastrophic losses, I would have never found my way. I would have never been propelled into an encounter with the God of the cross that shows his redemptive power even in the midst of suffering. When I got to college and was suddenly thrown into a circle of very articulate atheism, and as a freshman student at Yale, I found myself with so many questions now about the authority of this book, the Bible, if I hadn't had those doubts, I would have never gone on the journey that led me to read this Bible deeply enough to come to have profound confidence in its authority, its wisdom and reliability. If I didn't still have these dark nights of the soul, these moments of tremendous crisis and concern and questioning of God and his purposes, I would not have been led to the prayer life that I have. I would have not been driven to the feet of the mentors that have been such a profound blessing and help in my journey. How about you? How about you? How has God used doubt in your life? God uses our very doubts to draw us closer to him. That is the real message of our text for today. And I know it's not usually the way we read this famous passage about doubting Thomas. We've been brainwashed by so many doubt-crushing Christians through the years that, 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 that we, when we hear Jesus saying in this particular text, stop doubting and believe, Thomas, what we naturally conclude is that Christ is scolding Thomas for his unbelief. Bad Thomas! Bad, bad disciple. You doubt. Bad, bad, bad. Very bad. That's what we think Jesus is saying here. But have you really read the story? <laughs> because, I mean, if that's what Christ was really saying here, 
I think he would have been more explicit. If this was a lesson in the importance of banishing doubts, I think Jesus would have said something like this. Oh, Thomas, if you cannot believe without hard evidence, you are off the discipleship team. I mean, come on, guy. If you've got to have proof of this stuff, you just don't belong as one of my... John, strike him off the disciple list. Take away his membership card. Out of here. You know, I think that's what Jesus would have said if that's really what this story was all about. But that's not what's going on here. Look at what Jesus says instead, and I'm going to quote him here. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. Come on. See this wound in my hand? Come on, Tom. Stick your finger right in it. And, and, and Tom, come over here. See this spear wound in my side? This place where the centurion jabbed me to make sure I was dead on the cross? Put your whole hand in that gash wound. Come on. Do it. Jesus is saying the same thing here as he once put in his Sermon on the Mount when he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Discover. Let your doubts drive you towards discovery. And when he finally adds, stop doubting and believe, he's not berating Thomas any more than he's scolding you or me for our honest doubts. He's simply calling us to let the process of working through the doubts inspire the journey of discovery that leads to greater faith. He's, he's, just, he's saying, don't let the doubts become the block that sends you away. Let, let the doubts become the bridge that leads you to greater faith. Push on them till, they, till, till the, barri- to, to, to the barricade falls over and becomes a bridge. That's what I want you to do. And that's exactly what happens in the story. You see, the skeptic saint, Thomas, becomes the first great confessor of the awesome truth that becomes the gospel message. It's from the lips of the great doubter that we hear the first great proclamation that the risen Jesus isn't merely a resuscitated man. He's the God of the universe manifested to us. As Thomas falls to his knees in devotion, crying, my Lord and my God. It's then that Jesus says something that I think we would do well to attend to closely because it is aimed right smack dab at you and at me. Then Jesus told him, verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Because you have seen me, you've experienced me, you've touched me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen in this same way, and yet have believed. I think he had your face in his mind's eye 
when he said it. I think the infinite God could see all of us who would come to belief, who he wanted to come to belief. He could see us in his mind's eyes. He said these words, blessed are those ones who won't have this experience, but will come to belief. And so having talked about the nature of doubt a bit, there are two immensely important things I want to share about the nature of faith that I believe this passage reveals for us. The first springs from Christ's words about those who have not seen. What what I think Christ is saying here is that faith cannot finally be dependent on empirical proof alone. Now, Now, don't get me wrong here. Empirical proof is great. Uh, We should get as much of it as we can. I'm a follower of Jesus, probably in part because when I went looking for hard reasons to believe, I found them. You know, I'm a skeptical guy by nature. I am not going to follow a fantasy. I am not going to spend my entire life uh, following some kind of a fantasy. So I'm a believer in part because I became convinced as I've looked at the facts that it is a mathematical impossibility that this world and its intricacy and design happened through random collisions. I have been convinced that it is a mathematical impossibility that, that, that all of the disparate prophecies in the Bible could have suddenly combined as perfectly as they did in the life of one man in history as they did. I'm a believer in part because I have been convinced by the time-tested genius of Christ's ethical teachings. I've been convinced by the irrationality of any explanation that accounts for the conversion of behavior of these cowering fools like Peter and John and the others who now suddenly become these world-beating, courageous heroes of faith, unless something happened to them that they said was an encounter with the risen Christ. I am a believer today because of reasons. And yet, as compelling as these empirical factors are, The truth remains that if you're waiting yourself to step out on faith till all the questions are answered, if if you're waiting to, to give your fuller obedience to God's word, to his way in your life, if you're avoiding talking to others about the Lord Jesus that you're trying to follow, until you have some Thomas-like empirical experience that erases every single doubt, you may be stuck forever where you are right now. You may be. To my knowledge, Thomas was the only guy God ever let, Jesus ever let physically touch him after the resurrection. Think about it. Mary in the garden, she comes up to embrace him, Don't touch me, he says. I haven't returned to my father yet. Thomas is the only guy that gets that kind of empirical proof that what he's seeing isn't an illusion, a a dream, 
a mass hallucination, is the only one that gets that particular validation. For the rest of us, the blessing of knowing the reality of the presence and the power of God comes by another route. And this is the second key truth about faith that Christ's words imply. When Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe, that's how the RSV, Revised Standard Version, translates the line, have come to believe, when Jesus says this, he's telling us something very important. Very important. Remember this, if the person next to you has fallen asleep, just give them a little nudge so you don't miss this part. For most people, faith is not a possession so much as a process. Faith is not a possession so much as a process. Confidence in our spiritual convictions isn't something we stand there and get downloaded from God in one moment, finally got that figured out, so pleased it's settled. So much as it is a process of knowing in deeper and deeper ways as we step out on the Christian journey. One of the hardest things I discovered along my discipleship pathway, at the beginning, I would say, God, uh, give, me, give me more certainty and I'll go out there for you. God, give me more faith and I'll really obey your words. And God said to me, no, Dan, you go out there and obey. You go out there and venture on what I've said to you, and I'll give you more faith. I'll provide you with more certainty. It's what Jesus meant when he said elsewhere, it's only as we obey his teaching that we shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free. I don't know how many of you have ever heard the name Helmut Tielecki before. It's a hard enough name to spell, much less pronounce, but Tielecki was one of the great pastors of the last generation in Germany. And, uh, and Tielecki once issued a, a fascinating challenge to a skeptic with whom he was in conversation. And, and I offer his prescription to the doubters amongst us all, even as, frankly, I offered it in slightly different terms to that young man, Thomas, sitting in my office that day so many years ago. Tillichie writes, I challenge you to start with this working hypothesis. As if there was something to this Jesus. And as if his invitation to come to the table of the king actually existed. And then in the name of this working hypothesis, just venture for once to be confident and joyful in everything that happens to you today or tomorrow, daring to believe that it is designed for you by a higher hand. Just talk to God as if he existed. Just, just talk to him about your sin, about that difficulty in your life that you're struggling to manage as if he existed. Say a good word to that colleague 
who gets on your nerves or that person in your house who really annoys you, but do it in Christ's name and at his behest as if he existed and cared a lot about how you interacted in those circumstances. Just make an experiment with this working hypothesis Jesus and see whether you are met with silence or by something and someone else altogether. What might happen if you and I were to leave this place today and go out there and put our whole weight on his promises? Put our whole weight on his commandments as if he was the most dependable rock we could ever put our feet upon. What if? What might happen if we did? For what it's worth, I'm going to tell you what happened with my young friend, Thomas, who actually gave this something of a go. I got back together with him many, many months later, and, and he says, well, Dan, I've, I've been trying what you suggested. I've actually been coming to church pretty much most weeks, you know, sitting with the other hypocrites. Uh, I've been reading this book that you gave me. I, I got, I, I've been reading it pretty much daily, trying to understand it. I've been trying to go out there and actually do these things in my daily life to live out what I've been learning even when I didn't fully understand it or frankly believe it. So what happened, I asked. What's happened? Oh, nothing, he said. Nothing. I said, really? Nothing happened at all? No, not really. Not really. I'm still not very religious. Still got lots of doubts, questions, plenty of them. And I said to him, so you observed no changes whatsoever in yourself. Really? Well, there are some weird things, he said. I said, what weird things? He said, I've been feeling more hopeful about life. I mean, I, I don't know why, but I just am feeling more hope about the future. And, and I, I'm starting to feel compassion for these people that really bugged me in the past. And I find myself treating them better than I did before. And I'm thinking less about being a huge success in the way that I have always thought about that, and more and more about trying to make a difference with my life, with the gifts that I have. And I'm wanting to to keep reading the Bible. And I'm thinking that when we move back east in a little while, I think it's going to be a good idea if we find ourselves a church. But I'm not getting religious or anything he said. And I smiled. And I looked to God 
in spite of all my doubts and said, my Lord and my God, you are doing it again. May that be so for you and for me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? There were just 11. Just 11 skeptical, struggling, doubtful people in a room in an obscure part of the world. And you came to them, Lord, and you gave them enough reason to believe that they took a trembling step out into the world as if you were totally dependable. And now, 2,000 years later, billions have. Billions have found you faithful amidst their doubts. They have found your way of life, your power transforming them as individuals, altering civilization, bringing hope to this broken world. Do it again through us, we pray. Give us the courage to step forth in faith and to bring with us our honest doubts, but to not let those doubts become barriers, but bridges into a deeper discovery of your reliability. So send us forth this day to walk as skeptic saints in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.